And thank you, Alan. Thank you so much for being so good to me. Am I okay? Can you hear me? Thank you so much for how good you've been to me, how gracious you have all been this week. It's been a joy and a delight. Um, I never really heard of Bayshore Camp until Ellen had told me about it, and then she said, would you like to come and preach, teach, preach, whatever, we use them as synonyms, <laughs> and she said, you know, you can choose your own, you can choose what God lays on your heart, and I'm like, you want me to come, and you want me to speak, and I get to speak on what God lays on my heart to speak? Yeah, I'll be there. Sign me up. So thank you for making it such a wonderful week, and it's been my pleasure. And, and so we have a little bit of time today before we delve into the scripture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 14, but before we dig in, we have just a few minutes now, and so even as Ellen was praying, the, the, the words of songs were running, running through my mind, and I thought again, you know, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I want to live my life in the shadow of the cross as we talked about yesterday. So I want to give you a little bit of my background, a little bit of my story, because I don't know who I would be, I don't know what I would be apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. I was raised in a, a Christian home. I was taken to church every time the door was open. My father was a bivocational pastor. And I did accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior from sin when I was nine years old, but this is what happened to me. It wasn't so much an understanding of the cross, it was an understanding of hell that I didn't want to go there, you know? And so I, I loved what Tom said last night about coming, you don't have to say the sinner's prayer, to, even as you come forward, you're saved as you come forward. I went forward, my mom came and prayed with me, another pastor's wife came and prayed with me. They never led me through the sinner's prayer. But in my heart, I know that's the day I trusted in Christ and I received him as my Savior. And it would not be possible apart from the cross. So I didn't understand everything, but I understood that. And you know how it is. God is faithful. God is faithful. He never, ever let me go. We were in a church that taught the Bible. And... Our Sunday school teacher, when we were in high school, made us memorize scripture. I've lost a lot of it, but I remember she made us memorize two chapters. We had to memorize Luke chapter 2 at Christmas time, and she made us memorize Isaiah 53. So maybe that's part of the reason why it's so meaningful to me. So I got married real young, and I, and. Um, Met a guy that I had been in church with, his family and my family had grown up in church together. Our fathers both worked for GM in the Flint area. They were friends. Our families were friends. He went off to Liberty University, and he came back, and I'm like, whoa, he got cute. And so, and so I'm so pleased to, to introduce you to my husband, Danny. Danny, stand up. Yeah. He, he is the one that did the technology. He's the one that, that keeps me um, technologically somewhat savvy, not completely. He's my biggest supporter. He's my fan. He, um, he loves the Lord, and he loves me. And he's been listening to some of the talks on the website, but he said, I'm going to come out and surprise you because I can't stand not being there and hearing you. I mean, I love you, Danny. Thank you for your great support. So we got married young. He was 20, I was 18. We had our kids young. By the time we were, I was 24, I had both my children, we had our family. Life wasn't bad, but I just began to have a hunger for something more, something deeper. I wanted to go into God's word. So you know what I did? I didn't know what to do. So what I did every morning when I ate my cereal, I read my Bible as I ate my cereal. I mean, that's how I started. And I had a highlighter, and I just highlight the verses that stood out to me. And I started in Genesis, because I thought, I didn't know where to start. Go back to the beginning. I went back to the beginning. And I read through some of Paul's letters, because they, they're about Christian living, and I probably need this. And so sometime after that, I joined a small group Bible study. A friend my own age had, was in a very trying spot in life. She was really going through it. She ended up getting divorced from her husband, who was repeatedly unfaithful to her. And God, God wanted her to lead a study in our church. It was a study on the book of Nehemiah. 
It was called Restored in the Ruins. And so Karen led that study, and I went to it, but Karen ended up moving. And so I inherited that Bible study, so I taught it. And after a while, I, I still, I'm like, I like doing this, and I love being the teacher, and maybe God has some gifts for me here, but I just need to be fed. I don't know that much. And I heard about a Bible study called Bible Study Fellowship. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't know what you know or don't know about it. But it's an in-depth Bible study where you have homework. And I remember the first time I heard about it, my kids are small, I'm thinking, a Bible study with homework? You've got to be kidding me. But as it would happen, BSF came to our church. Our church hosted it. And two gals from my church invited me, two separate gals on two separate occasions. And so I thought to myself, I wonder what that's all about. And I remember being out on the deck one summer. The kids were a little bit older, and it, I didn't hear a voice, but it was like, you really need to go to Bible study fellowship. You know, there was no written in the sky, so I thought, you know what, I'll go. So I went. I went. And Bible study fellowship is interdenominational. You come from all walks of life, all church backgrounds, no church background, and you just open the, the Bible and you just study it. So you might say you're in Ephesians, you might read chapter 1 this week and answer questions on the first four verses, the second four verses, and you just go through. And then when you come back to class the next week, you sit in a small group and you discuss it. You discuss your answers. A leader leads you through. And then you go from there into the sanctuary, and there's a teacher who gives a lecture, which is over the same material. Man, our lecturer was so good. She just loved the Lord, and she loved his word. And I quickly fell in love with her. And then as you leave, you take home some commentary notes. They call it the fourfold approach. So that BS, Danny's parents, my parents, and my teacher from BSF have been the most spiritually impactful mentors in my life. At the end of my first year, we were studying the Gospel of John that year, the teacher asked me to be a leader, so I became a leader. And after I became a leader and got some leadership training, I began to help in my own church with women's ministry events. And when we had events, they'd ask me to do the talks. And my training from BSF enabled me to. And one night we're laying in bed and I said to Danny, I said, why would you say if I told you that God's calling me to teach adult Bible studies in the church. And he, being the supportive guy he is, said, really? <laughs> and he supported me, and we, I started teaching adult Sunday school. And after that, I had been doing that for a few years, and we're laying in bed one night, and, you know, there's the teacher of the Bible study fellowship class, and then she has a substitute teaching leader who fills in when she's gone, who does some other unique roles. And I'm laying in bed with Danny one night, and I said, what would you say if I told you that God's calling me to be the substitute teaching leader? My teaching leader had never said a word to me. The substitute teaching leader at that time was a dear friend. And that February, my teaching leader says to me, Carolyn says, Bonnie, I need you to pray about being the substitute teaching leader. I said, Carolyn, I've been praying since October. God let me know. And she was so sneaky. Carolyn was so sneaky because you know what she kept saying to me? Well, now, Bonnie, someday when you're the teaching leader, dot, 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 dot. And I'm like, ah! I'm like, I can't be the teaching leader. I'm, I'm just, you know, she was very much a spiritual mother. She had six kids. I, I, she could have been my, she was my, younger than my mother, actually. And it's just like, I don't know. It's, ah, ah! So I go on a mission trip with my 13-year-old son. We're in uh, the Hilton Head area, but we're in the mainland, in the poor part, not the ritzy part. And we're at this retreat center, and I always sleep. And I, I can sleep. I used to always be able to sleep. But I'm up early. And I'm out there in that piney woods with my Bible. The kids aren't even up yet. It's not even breakfast yet. And I am pacing. And I am pacing. And I am pacing. And, and I like what someone said. You don't wrestle. You can wrestle with God, but you can't wrestle against him. And he was calling me to be the teaching leader of the class. And I did not think I could do it. I wasn't old enough. I didn't have experience enough. My teaching leader had said those little tidbits, but she had never said anything else. I get home from the mission trip. Danny, what would you say if I told you God's calling me to be the teaching leader? Really? 
really? And I said, really? Along about February, Carolyn says, Bonnie, you got to pray about being a teaching leader. you got to pray about taking this class. And imagine her joy and relief when I said, I've already been praying. I've already been praying. So God raised me up through this organization. Yes, I was mentored in my church. Yes, I was discipled in my church. Yes, church is a huge part of my story. But each one of us is unique. Our calling is unique. Our gifting is unique. And God has gifted me and called me to teach in an interdenominational setting. And can I tell you, my friends, I love it. I love it because I have learned to keep primary issues primary and some things are secondary. Some things we don't budge on, we don't change on, but some things are secondary. So with fear and with trembling and as an act of my will and absolute obedience to God's call, I said, yes, I will do this. I've got to tell you that uh, many scriptures have had meaning in my life and through my journey, but right now the one that I just love is in Psalm 16, and verse 5 and 6 especially. Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Get this. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I love that. And I've got to tell you, I could not do this without Danny, without his support, without his help. Even just the technical end, I can't do it without him. And so one of my prayers from the scripture is from Proverbs 31. Friends, can I tell you that Proverbs 31 is not my favorite passage of scripture? I mean, that is a lot to live up to. But there are some things in there I do like. I like verses 11 and 12. Well, 10, a wife of noble character who can find... She's worth far more than rubies. Oh, now I'm going to cry. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. That's my prayer for my marriage and for my husband, that I bring him good and not harm all the days of my life. So what have I learned through this process? I learned... Uh, my nephew, when he was a little guy, precocious, cute as a button, you know, the first grandchild, my sister-in-law's training him. Now, Josh, we don't tell daddy no. Okay, when, when daddy tells us to do something, we don't tell daddy no. So this is what I have learned. When God calls you to do something, you don't tell daddy no. And I have learned, to, I have learned about God's character his trustworthiness, his accuracy, his ab ability to equip us. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So we don't have to have PhDs. We don't have to be special to be called by God, to be used by God. And I have learned to know and experience God's benefits, God's, God's blessings. God's blessings, because obedience brings blessings, God's blessings are his benefits. Can I tell you that service in the Lord's kingdom, being in ministry for him, is not always easy, but he has a great benefit package. Let me tell you, it is wonderful. And you all have been benefits to me this week. How that Jesus, the very God of very God, as the old creeds say, would love me, Bonnie Lee Caldwell, enough to save me from the wrath of God at my own sin amazes me. The depths of love that Jesus went to to reach me. How could he love me so much? I'm just not worth it. When I think of him hanging on the cross dying for me, I'm just not worth it. But Jesus says I am. I'm just a nobody from Flint, Michigan, no education, no, edu no credentials, nothing to recommend me to anyone or anything. I'm kind of like John Newton, the, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. You know his story. He was a slave slaver who traded in the slave trade, went to Africa, filled up his ship, brought the slaves back, and God reached down in his grace and saved him. And he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. At the end of his life, John Newton's famous for saying this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I remember that I'm a great sinner, and I remember that Christ is a great Savior. 
The cross of Christ means more to me today than at any other time in my life. And I glory in the cross, and I hope that next year, this time, it means more to me than it does right now. The cross is my hope, it's my comfort, it's my comfort, it's my best thought, it's my greatest joy. To get five sessions to preach Christ and him crucified, is this heaven? No, it's Bayshore. <laughs> I am not what I ought to be. I stand before you with fear and trembling. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not even what I should be what I want to be, but by the grace of God and his love and mercy expressed at the cross, praise his name, I'm not what I used to be either. He is in the business of changing me. Because of the cross, I know this, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and I belong to him. And if you are saved and if you are born again, your life is not your own. You don't get to choose. You don't get to decide. The cross means surrender. The cross means Jesus is king and we are not because it was a cross of love. Austin, if we could have that video.
so we've seen that Passover is the precursor to the cross. We did not look at the Day of Atonement, but that is another shadowing of the cross. We did not look at Psalm 22, but a thousand years before it happened, the psalmist is also describing it in graphic detail. Some of the very words that Christ said were from Psalm 22. Isaiah saw the cross from afar and described the suffering servant. The Gospels record the event of the cross itself. May we never forget that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so you and I would never have to. May we never forget that Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I need never, ever be. The cross of Christ is the center point of human history. And the disciples, they never got over, they never forgot the cross. Paul resolved to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are to live our lives in the shadow of the cross, to keep its scenes ever before us. And the cross applies even in the church. Who knew? Who knew? So, so here's our context for today. We don't live in the first century anymore. We live many centuries after that. What about life today? Of course, we get it. We need the cross for salvation. Most of us get that. But is there more? Is there more to this thing of being a Christian, of being a Christ follower, than just celebrating the cross at Good Friday and at Easter? Does the cross have bearing on my life every day today? Every day, every morning, every afternoon, every evening. Does it have bearing? Is the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ for conversion only? Is the cross just kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card? Get-out-of-hell-free card? The Apostle Paul, who struggled and suffered so much for the sake of the cross, didn't just leave it in the past on a hill far away. Or if you're a Star Wars fan in a galaxy far, far away, he didn't just leave it there. It had meaning. It had impact on his life every single day. I'd like to read to you a couple of things he wrote to the churches in Galatia. And just as a side note, you know, did you know the book of Galatians was not written to one church? that there was not one church in Galatia. Galatia was a region, and there were several churches there. And this is what Paul wrote to them. In chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Paul says, I've been crucified with him, I'm dead now. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. It's personal. The cross of Christ is personal. Paul says that he loved me, because, and he said, I was crucified with Christ. The idea is face-to-face, nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball, heart-to-heart. Paul is dying to himself and living in the power of the resurrection. And then he also said in Galatians 6, Paul says this, which goes along with what we talked about yesterday, Galatians 6, 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Crucified to me and I to the world. So let's look in, in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 9. Let's talk about the cross for the believer, starting in verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Let's back up just a minute. Let's get the context better. So this is the Gospel of Luke. Luke was not one of the apostles. Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke undertook to write an accurate account, and he was a doctor, he was a physician, he knew symptoms, he knew details, and he went and searched out all the facts and all that had happened. He's the one that gets the story above Elizabeth. He's the one that puts in about the shepherds. He's the one that talks a lot about the diseases. He talked about the sweat, great drops of blood because he's a doctor. So he gives us more of this. He has more inclusion of women in his gospel than in other gospel accounts. 
So he's been telling the story of Jesus, and he gets to this point, and in chapter 9 earlier, Peter has said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus begins to predict his death. Okay, now verse 23, then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? What good is, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple. This, this is just fascinating. Did you know that the New Testament uses the word Christian? How many times does the New Testament use the word Christian? Do you know? Just guess, if you had to guess. 27 books, how many times? Zero, a zero guess? One, okay, three. Three times the word Christian appears in the New Testament. Acts 11:26. the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It meant little Christ, Christ follower. There are Christians, okay? In Acts 26, 28, Tom's been preaching about Festus. Well, then Paul has another, another encounter with King Agrippa, okay, later. In Acts 26, King Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then once again, we have it in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, 6, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Jesus never used the word Christian. He used the word disciple. How many times do you think the word disciple, disciples, might be in the New Testament? Lots. Lots. 296 times we read the word disciple, disciples. Today, we talk a lot about being a good Christian, becoming a Christian. Uh, li I listen to Christian radio. I, I read Christian books. We have Christian bookstores. We ha we have, we're all Christians, and we tend to add discipleship for only those who are really serious about God, who, who, who want to go deeper. That's what discipleship is. Jesus never called anyone to be a Christian. I mean, this is what happens when you dig into the Word of God and you read it for yourself. It messes with your theology, doesn't it? It messes with your theology. Jesus never called anyone to be a Christian. He called men and women and boys and girls to be his disciples. And my friends, we have made Christianity so easy. We have just added it in on top of everything. You know, whatever, you believe a little of this, you believe a little of that, you believe a little bit of the cross. Oh, you're a Christian. Jesus did not make it easy. Jesus never said, come, believe in me, and God has a great plan for your life. You'll never suffer, you'll never be sick, you'll never be misunderstood. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, the Greek word means student, follower, committed learner, follower, one who adheres to the teachings of. Uh, a while ago, uh, in my mom's day, the big deal for child rearing was Dr. Spock. Everybody got Dr. Spock's book. They were Dr. Spock's disciples because they were adhering to his teachings. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple. <laughs> he didn't call people to come forward and sign a card, even though there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus did not even tell people to say the sinner's prayer, even though there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus did, did give three steps to becoming a disciple, but let me tell you, my friends, you look at these verses, these are not three easy steps to being a disciple. These are three difficult and challenging and mind-blowing and life-altering steps. These are Jesus' discipleship requirements. My friends, this is not easy believism. This is not anything goes. This is not, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. You know, as long as you love Jesus, it's all right. This is not what Jesus is talking about. This is hard. This is difficult. This is gut-wrenching. This is going to cost you something. 
This is entering through the narrow gate and taking the narrow road. And Jesus himself said, only if you find it. And one of the biggest insults we can be called today is to be called narrow-minded. Guess what? That's all right. It's biblical. It's biblical to be narrow-minded. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great and brilliant German theologian and pastor, who dared to stand against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. This is what he wrote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls you and me, he bids us come follow me and die. And he also wrote this, and I love this because it fits with the week. Bonhoeffer said, discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus. Adherence, like it sticks to you. You know, adherence to the person of Jesus and therefore submission to the law of Christ, which is the law of the cross. Jesus says three things. Number one, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Okay, you're countercultural right now. Deny myself. The world says it's all about me. The world says you deserve to be happy. The world says you should go for it. You deserve it. The cross of Christ says this life is not all about you. And it's not all about me. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's about the empty tomb. It's about the risen Lord. He ascended to the Father's right hand where he lives to intercede for those who come to him. This is about Jesus who is coming again, not to bear sin, but to judge the world in righteousness. Do you want to be a Christ follower? It's not about you. It's not about your preferences, your style of worship, your favorite translation of the Bible. Ouch. Ouch. I love my translation of the Bible. You want to be a true Christian? It means giving up your rights. I am so blessed how God works things out. I forgot to get this book out. I picked up uh, one of Tom's books, and I was reading through it yesterday afternoon. Let's look at, listen to what he wrote in his book on prayer. Today I choose to die to myself, to put off the old man and put on the new, to take up my cross and follow you. I choose to do this because I know that it is the refusal to die to self that makes me miserable. Oh my goodness, this is golden. This is golden. The refusal to die to myself was what makes me miserable. Why am I so unhappy? And why am I, and I, and why am I so down? And why am I so discouraged? Because I just think it's all about me. And Tom goes on, he's teaching us to pray. He goes on to say, I yield. So this is right out of his book, Lord Teaches to Pray. i got to go through this with you. I yield the right to be appreciated, the right to be right, the right to be heard, the right to nurse my hurts, the right to privacy, the right to leisure. Oh, really? I love my leisure. The right to leisure, the right to defend myself, the right to be needed, the right to good health. There are those who will teach us that if we believe in Christ, we have the right to good health. What does the scripture say? 2 Timothy 4.20, Job 2.10, 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 are the scriptures Tom gives us. The right to financial security, the right to my schedule, the right to friends, the right to success in ministry. What was Isaiah's ministry? Be ever hearing, never foreseeing. These people are never going to get it. How long? <laughs> Till the cows come home. You know, till the, till, till the land is no more. The right to be forgiven, the right to be understood, the right to be accepted, the right to pleasure, independence, to be respected, to my future plans. The right to things, expectations, control, my reputation. Oh, I don't like him for this one. The right to eat carelessly. Oh, man, I had some, I had frozen yogurt and sugar-free vanilla last night. I'm not going to tell you what I had the other nights. Uh, the right to complain, the right to vengeance, the right to comfort, the right to quit, the right to be angry, the right to relationships. Oh my goodness. Jesus says you must take up, you must deny yourself. you got to deny yourself. You have no rights. Oh, that's so un-American. That's so un-American. But it's biblical. You and I have the right to remain 
silent. And we have the right to obey the word of God at any and all costs. We don't get to tell daddy no. But getting yourself out of the way is only the first step. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. First thing to notice, it does not say take up Christ's cross. Only Jesus himself was sufficient for a sacrifice for sin. So we don't have to do like they do in Mexico at, at Lenten on Good Friday and strap a cross on our back, have everybody as we walk through town beat on us and yell at us. We don't have to do as they do in the Middle Ages with the little whips and beat themselves, you know, to suffer for Jesus. We have to take up our cross. They must take up their cross. What is the believer's cross? Is the believer's cross Oh, my physical limitations, I've got cancer, I can't do this, I've got this, I have this issue. Uh, is it, I'm anxious, I'm worrying, is that my cross? Is my cross, I'm just in this really difficult marriage and, and my spouse just doesn't understand. Oh, that's just my cross to bear. Is it that difficult boss? No, no, no. That is not the believer's cross. That is just life in the fallen world. The believer's cross is Christ's call to discipleship. This is what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, come and follow me. I have a very difficult, very near impossible plan for your life, but you are going to love it in the end. This is what he's saying. The believer's cross is putting to death, crucifying. You know the word excruciate? Oh, that's excruciating pain. Same root word as crucify. The same idea. To crucify anything in my heart, in my life, in my attitude, in my speech, in my relationships, to put to death anything that gets in the way of me following Jesus. That's my cross. That's my cross. It means that Jesus wins and I lose. It means, in fact, I don't just lose, I have to die. I die to myself, I die to my agenda, I die to my schedule, I die to my pride, I die to my rights. Whatever I do that stands in the way of my relationship to Jesus Christ and full obedience to him, that's the cross that I take up. And that looks different for different believers. You and I here today, who knows what could happen in the future? We could literally, some of us in this room, be called to die, literally give our lives for Christ. But let me tell you something, my friends. If Jesus Christ is worth dying for, then he most certainly is worth living for. Taking up my cross and following him for me means saying yes to his call to obey, to worship, to serve. Taking up the cross for me means I go in my office, I open my Bible, I turn my computer on when I really want to sit on my deck with a book and a large Diet Coke. But I have to die to that so I can do what Christ wants me to do. Taking up your cross means getting up early. So that may mean getting up early so that you can read your Bible and you can pray when really you just want to sleep. You're crucifying that desire to sleep. That's your cross. Taking up your cross means when the pastor asks you to consider taking that class, to consider taking that role, to be, consider become, becoming involved in that ministry, you seriously and prayerfully consider it. And nine times out of ten, you will say yes. Because very, very likely a call to serve God is a call from God. We'll talk a little bit about the call in a few minutes. Taking up your cross means when you're clicking on your computer and you really, your flesh just wants to go to that site that you know you shouldn't go, you just don't go there. And if you have a struggle with that, it means you've got to get rid of your computer. That's the cross of Christ for you. You get the computer out or the Netflix or the TV cable or whatever it is that causes you to sin, you put it to death. You put it to death. You've got to take up your cross daily. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Not follow the latest preacher, not follow the latest fad. You have to be careful, my friends, even when you go to the Christian bookstore. 
because not everything in there is biblical. So I warn you as a Bible teacher, check it out, line it up against the word of God. Not all that stuff is right and good. And some of the authors and the teachers, they're not teaching the truth. They're not teaching the truth. They're not teaching you to take up your cross. They're teaching God just wants to bless you and bless you and bless you and bless you. You know what? There are blessings and benefits to following him, but he said enter through the narrow gate. It's hard, and you might hardly fit through there. You got to get, you know, you got to get some of this baggage off. Taking up your cross means you don't commit sexual immorality, even though it's tempting, and even though it seems like no one would ever know. You have to follow him. The 12 literally followed Jesus. They followed Jesus to Galilee. They followed him to Capernaum. They followed him to Jerusalem. They followed him to the upper room. And after his, his resurrection and ascension, they followed Christ to the ends of the known world. But how do we follow him today? You mean, you mean if I'm a disciple, I have to go to Africa and take the gospel there? You might. You might. And if you do, God will go with you and he will give you the strength to do it. But it probably looks like, following Christ today probably looks like just trying to live in obedience to his teachings. You don't worry about what you don't know. You don't worry about the scriptures that you don't understand. You don't fight and argue over different views of the revelation, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever-trib. You don't, you don't stay up nights trying to figure out who the 144,000 are. You just obey what you know. You've got to forgive your neighbor. You gotta love your neighbor, you gotta love your spouse, you gotta get yourself in church, you gotta teach your kids to love the Lord. How do we follow Christ today? It's the gospel for the world. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And if you and I can't go, we best well be supporting those who can. We best well be praying and giving money. That's obedience to his command, that's how we follow him. Obedience to his teaching, the gospel for the world, and conformity in our lifestyle. Not to get saved, but because we are saved. I had a wonderful pastor teaching the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights, and this is what he said to us over and over again. This book teaches you've been saved. Now start acting like it. Start acting like it. Conformity to Christ. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's the exchanged life. Jesus bore our punishment. We get pardon. He became sin for us so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Clinging to this life for all it's worth ends up in eternal destruction. I love this. I choose to die to myself because I know that it is the refusal to die to self that makes me miserable. Are you a miserable Christian? I've been there. I'm not going to lie. I was there this summer earlier. I'm not going to lie. Because I wasn't dying to myself. Clinging to this life for all it's worth ends up in destruction. But giving up this life, offering it up as this act of worship, Jesus, you're worth it. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my will. I'll give you my kids. I'll give you my grandkids. I'll give you my career. I'll give you my esteem in the community. I will give you this ministry. If you don't want me to do it anymore, I won't. Giving it up for the sake of Christ, for the love of the Lamb, is what leads to salvation. Even if you had everything, if you were a millionaire and you had a, a life of unbelievable ease and fun and joy, and even if you lived a very long time, a very prosperous time apart from Christ, then the day of death still comes. What's the death rate in, in the United States, the mortality rate? What did Tom say? It's 100%, you know? We all are going to die. And then the judgment. And are you going to stand before him and say, I'm really happy that you died to save me, but I didn't want to live for you. Are you going to stand before him and say, um, I love it that you had a cross, but I didn't know I had a cross too. Is the cross just for Jesus that day long ago? Is there a cross for you and a cross for me? Let's have a video about this.
beautiful? Just beautiful. You know, today in our society, we say no pain, no gain. Jesus says no cross, no crown. Let's look uh, over at, at Luke chapter 14. Apparently, this is an important subject because just a few chapters later, Jesus picks it up again. Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25. Verse 25. Large, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, Man, you guys are all in the right place. This is awesome. We got the best church going on. Let's just build a bigger church. Let's build a bigger building. This is great. It doesn't matter that you're a mile wide and an inch deep. That's cool with me. No. Jesus said to these large crowds, he didn't, it didn't go to his head. He didn't get all puffed up. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can not be my disciple. What? What? And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What is he talking about? Is he, is he saying you got to hate your father and mother? I thought the Bible said we we're to honor them. The idea is not hating, it's of loving less. Who do you love less? Do you love your spouse or Jesus less? Do you love your kids and grandkids less or Jesus left? Who's first? The idea is of loving Jesus more. He has to be first. He has to be foremost. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. How many people think they're Christians and they're not disciples? Does that describe you? Does that describe me? This is Christ's own assessment. Jesus is making a judgment because he judges justly. He knows and he sees the heart. If you don't carry your cross, if you don't follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And all the gobbledygook that goes on in the church, that's my word, I penned that one, gobbledygook. This is what happens. This is what happens in Matthew Jesus, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's my Father's will? That I take up my cross, that I deny myself, and that I follow him. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Lord, in the name of Jesus we did this, and in the name of Jesus we did that, and in the name of Jesus we did that. And Jesus says this, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Apart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Jesus says, uh-uh, you're not mine. That, she's not mine. He's not mine. They cannot be my disciples if they have not denied themselves and taken up their cross daily, and followed me. And Jesus gives two examples here in Luke 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down first and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish one, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. What a moron! Didn't he go get his mortgage first? Didn't he get his finances figured out? You got your basement and that's it? And then he says another one. Or suppose, verse 31, a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fitting neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's fit only to be thrown out. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity, and Jesus says it's absolutely worthless. Just pitch it out in the garbage. If you're called to do something, you count the cost. 
There is a cost to discipleship. I am so grateful that salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, but the price of discipleship can be very costly. So how do I know if God is calling me to do something? Three things I want to give you. I, I avoid doing the three things this, but th these, these are pretty valid. If a call is from God, there will be three points. First and foremost, it will line up with Scripture. If you're the mother of seven kids, God is not calling you to be a missionary in Africa and leave those kids behind, okay? It's got to line up with Scripture. If it's not biblical, don't do it. Don't do it. First and foremost, it must align with the scripture. Second, there needs to be some type of confirming circumstances. I felt that I was being called to the class so that when the teaching leader approached me, I could say, Carolyn, I've been praying. That was a confirming circumstance. I love her story when she was called to teach in Bible study fellowship. She had started going and she was in the class and she was talking to a friend in another state who was in a class and the friend said, yeah, I started going to this Bible study and I really like my teacher. Carolyn, you'd be amazed. You could do this. I could so see you doing this. Out of the blue, some kind of confirmation. And the third point, perhaps, is, is I don't know which is more important, but this, this is key. You have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. So if you're saying, yes, I'll be on the worship team, that means you're going to go to practice. That means you're going to be there. That means you're going to be faithful if you're saying, you know what, I'll work in the nursery, but wait, um, I'm really susceptible to every germ that comes through. You've got to count the cost. There's a cost to be paid. Right, if you're working in the kitchen, you get what's, up, what's left over when everybody else is done, right? You count the cost, okay? We have all been called. We've been called for salvation. We've been called to be, for sanctification to be made more and more like Christ and less and less like us. We have been called for service. There's a whole other message I could give you about the call to suffering and perseverance in suffering. Because I personally believe, and I've seen it lived out in my life and others, the most sanctification takes place when you are serving and suffering. Sanctification, serving, and suffering seem to go together in my book. This is what I firmly believe. I believe that we have been saved to serve. God didn't save you and immediately translate you to heaven. God didn't save you and set you on a shelf. God saved you so that you could serve him for the glory of his name, to the glory of the name of Christ in the nations, so that others might know. The cross for a believer is not very often taught. It's not very often understood. Jesus says the cross for the believer is necessary. It's not optional. You cannot be my disciple apart from it. And here's the thing, my friends, the cross for the believer is personal. It's personal. No one else can do it for you. We have to run with perseverance what the race marked out for us. I almost hesitate to use that illustration because in our world we say all roads lead to heaven. There's only one road, and we're all on the race. But there's different hurdles, different detours that God takes us on in the race that's marked out for us. The cross for the believer is voluntary. It's voluntary. No one will force you to take up your cross and follow Christ. Every one of us must take it up willingly. And, and the cross for the believer is mortal. It is meant to kill. It's meant to kill all selfish desires, all ambition, all plans, all pride. You know, you're going one way, you're doing one thing, and all of a sudden your world falls apart, and you think your world's falling apart. But you're hurting, you're broken. Maybe God's just setting it right, getting you back where he needs you to be so that you can take up your cross and follow him. Listen, they carried their crosses on their backs up the Via Della Rosa and out to the place of execution. And their crimes were written on them. That The cross was an instrument of death. You carried a cross, you were seen in a Roman city, you were dying. You and I take up our crosses, we die. We're dying. We're dying to ourselves. We're dying to our agenda. We're dying to what we want. We're dying to our will, our way. And we're living for Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, it's hard. 
Can I tell you it's hard? But can I tell you there is joy in dying? There is joy in just letting go and dying. And this is how we bear fruit for eternity. We bear fruit for eternity because we died here. Jesus said, unless the kernel of wheat remains a single seed, it, it, it falls to the ground and dies. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't remain a single seed. I'm really butchering that one. Oh, my goodness. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. You've got to fall to the ground and die, and then you produce a harvest of righteousness. Another one of my favorite verses is John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When we die to ourselves, that's when our lives start to be fruitful. Man, we've covered some ground this week. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Is it just a symbol? Is it meaningful? Or not? When you think about the Passover, when you think about the suffering servant, when you think about the cup of God's wrath and the cross of Christ, how can you and I not know to the bottom of our hearts that this had to be a cross of love? The disciples never got over the cross. It was the great message that they gave their lives for. Every single one of the disciples, except for John, who was exiled to Patmos, was killed, literally died, for the message of the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of history. It's the only thing worth boasting about. It's our only hope in this life and in the life to come. It's the, it's the uh, true discipleship means taking up your cross and denying yourself, and following him. That means being quick to repent, being quick to seek forgiveness, not holding grudges, not being a worrier, not being obsessed with things that you have no control of. It means dying to all that, and just letting God be God in every fiber of your being, in every aspect of it. I could go on and on and on, but it's getting hot in here, and I'm almost out of time. Uh, how do we respond to such a love as this? How do we respond to such a love as this? I, I just got to tell you, this man loves me. This man loves me. He would do anything for me. He would get anything for me. One of my primary love languages is gifts. I have to be careful what I admire because he'll go buy it and bring it home and I don't really need it and maybe we can't really afford it. How do I respond to a love like that? I love him back. I love him back and try to speak his love language. How do you respond to such a love as the cross of Christ? When you look at the cross, what do you see? What does it do for you? My friends, let me just ask you this. What does the cross of Christ demand from you and me? When you survey the wondrous cross, what do you see? Will you play that for us, please, Austin? When I survey the wondrous cross On which the Prince of Glory died My richest
be a cross of love. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all because, my friends, he is worth it. He's worth it. Thank you so much for letting me come and talk to you this week. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I just pray that we will never see the cross again. And so as we dismiss, I want to give us a shout out to Austin. Thank you so much, Austin. You've done great. Great. Appreciate it so much. And, and let's pray. Father God, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blood and the water that flowed. Thank you that you paid the price we could never pay. Thank you that you drank the cup of God's wrath so we would never have to. That you were forsaken by your Father so we would never need be. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means to be a disciple. Help us to start calling ourselves Christ followers and disciples as well as Christians. Equip us and enable us to take up our cross daily and to deny ourselves and to follow you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you his shalom peace. In Jesus' name, amen.